Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show. Celebrity interviews, amazing real-life stories, politics, investigations, a proper mixed bag, but with the unifying factor that hopefully all of these conversations are interesting. Today we're going to meet Sean Foley, Artistic Director of Birmingham Rep, our perfect guide to what happens next for the performing arts in the time of coronavirus. Sean has an amazing theatrical CV, actor, playwright, director, and now the boss of a major producing theatre. He was one half of the successful Right Size comedy duo with Hamish McColl, wrote the West End hit play, The Play, What I Wrote, a tribute to Morecambe and Wise, which secured him one of his two Olivier Awards, as well as a Tony Award on Broadway. He's also directed for the Royal Shakespeare Company, made an acclaimed comedy called Mindhorn for the big screen. Sean, welcome along. That's a pretty exhaustive and exhausting CV, isn't it? I'll tell you what, you, as you were reading it out, I was thinking, God, this guy's done a lot. <laughs> who's he? <laughs> hardly re- who's he? hardly recognise myself. <laughs> as, uh, didn't John Cleese say in one of these things, you get, but you haven't mentioned my humanity. What about my bloody humanity? <laughs> he's, he's got a fabulous amount of humanity as well. We've got to point that out. <laughs> You've uh, got to. <laughs> so, Sean, I'll, I'll come to your role at Birmingham Rep and this kind of pretty serious time that we're in for everyone, but particularly for people in the performing arts. But where did, where did your story start? Uh, that's a, um, I wish I knew. <laughs> I hope you don't I keep asking me very difficult questions like this, Adrian. Um well, I guess it started at the very, very sort of tail end of being at school, uh, possibly before that, you know, always loved larking about, basically, which is essentially I found a way to professionally lark about. That's how I view it. So at the end of school, I sort of got, you know, got involved in putting on sketches and we did them in front of the class and then front in front of the school. And then I thought, and then when I went to university, I thought I'd like to, to do something like that so um I tried to join a couple of drama societies and they kind of weren't for me the either the people involved or the material they were doing was you know a bit too earnest for me for my tastes and so I ended up going to the town youth theatre and and where was this Sean what which where were you growing up where were you well originally I if you want the full story there Adrian I uh, I sort of my mum's a brummy my mum's a um, Birmingham girl, and my dad was an Irish immigrant, a pretty typical Birmingham story, and they got together in sort of early 60s in Birmingham. Uh, but I was born um, in Lincolnshire, in Cleethorpes in Lincolnshire. Stop me <laughs> if I go on too long, but we moved around a lot. No, we weren't on the run from the police. Um, but uh, I pretty much spent my primary school years in Birmingham suburbs, still got a lot of family from my mum's side uh, in and around the city. So we, we grew up just south of the city in Dorridge, near Sully Hall. Um, and, then, uh, and then my sort of teenage years were split between, we, we lived in Kent for a bit, and then I sort of grew up for the rest of the time in Slough, just west of London. Um, it begs the question then, why, why were you moving around a lot if, if you weren't on the road? Uh, is it, I, my dad kept getting sort of. Um, he actually get, kept getting promoted. Actually, so he was sort of in a re- regional office. He worked in the print trade, but uh, re- little regional office, then a sort of major office in Birmingham. Then he got then he got moved to the head office in London. So that was 
that was really that story. But it did mean it moved around a lot, which curiously, when you get into acting and the industry of theatre and TV and film, you do you do sort of bump into a lot of people who have had kind of slightly odd upbringings in some some way. And uh, they found their way into that industry as, I don't know, as a sort of solution to, to, um, to them being, you know, just slightly misplaced or a bit different. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to come over all Dr. Anthony Clare with you, but I mean, do you think that that moving about, maybe not putting down roots in any one particular place for a long time has influenced how you've turned out professionally? I think it, that's sort of inevitable, actually. Yeah, I think that's definitely been part of it. And uh, who you are and is partly, you know, how you grow up, what you do, who you meet, where you are. And if that keeps changing, I don't know, you could say if you are Anthony Clare, well, that gets you used to sort of constantly having to present a, a new front to people all the time. It's quite, it's actually quite, you know, I think it's quite difficult for kids if if that happens. And um, it's only looking back from this distance, we sort of go, yeah, it's a rather strange thing. But of course, you never, you never think about that when you're going through it as a kid, just uh, wh- whatever is normal seems normal to you. But I'm sure it must have had some sort of input into what I finally ended up doing. Mm. And so you say that you started then, you know, obviously somebody who enjoyed fooling around and having a laugh, yeah. who, who, who doesn't, I suppose. But at some point then, that, that starts to become a, a kind of proper serious interest for you. That's right. So I, I went to this youth theatre and I was kind of lucky enough to bump into a bunch of guys who'd just come back from a, a kind of rather extraordinary theatre school in Paris run by a guy called Jacques Lecoq. And it's called Lecoq Theatre School. And they were setting up a, a little theatre company. They had no money, so they'd come along to this tiny theatre and gave workshops So you know, to get free rehearsal space. And I did these workshops. They were only a few years older than me, by the way, at that time. And they'd set up this company with this rather pretentious-sounding name, Theatre de Complicité, who then became, you know, subsequently became sort of huge in um independent theatre in this country and brought a whole sort of way of working which was much more comical and physical and sort of European influenced kind of theatre. I didn't know any of this at the time. I just loved doing these workshops on basically how to be foolish, being a clown on stage. So at the end of these workshops, I said, well, where did you train? Because I've never come across anything like this. You know, people go to RADA, they learn how to do plays and texts and all of this sort of thing. But they they were teaching how to be physically foolish, how to do physical comedy, how to be sort of, as it were, Buster Keaton and Eric Morecambe rolled into one. So I thought, I've got to go and, I've got to go and learn that, you know, train there. So they gave me the address of this place in Paris and I took myself off there promptly ran out of money after about three months and but during that time I'd met this other guy Hamish McCall who'd had a sort of similar but different journey to get to that three months in Paris onto a clown course and we came back and rather foolishly actually (laughs) looking back set up our own theatre company which is not to be recommended to anyone. (laughs) 
No, but it obviously worked for you. But it's a deliciously outsiderish kind of story, though, isn't it? Because most people who achieve any kind of standing in the world of drama in this country, you feel, this may not be strictly accurate, but you feel if they've got a comedic bent, they'll have come up through the footlights or they'll have gone to RADA. I know there are lots of actors and comedians who, who don't actually travel that route, but it, it can be kind of an overbearing presence. But you clearly somebody who from very early on went your own way. In terms of sort of TV and film, I think people are, certainly in comedy comedy side of it, there's lots more roots into it because there's lots of ways of doing comedy. You know, there's as many ways of doing comedy as there are people doing it. Mm. so you could be a stand-up you can do you know want to do Edinburgh Fringe type of show you can get into writing TV comedy try and get on the TV whatever those things are but certainly in if you want to do comedy create comedy for the theatre there are very very few outlets and there were very few theatre companies doing that which is I guess why we set up our own one because we also wanted to write our own material so we ended up making you know a series of shows that sort of combined you know they were stories they were plays if you like but they were full of stuff full of visual and physical gags as well as lots of jokes you know uh, and but characters in situations rather than stand-up and we just merrily did that for sort of like nearly 10 years actually and set up the company slowly so we had a bit of an infrastructure and then toured around and then we then then we started to get to be really successful actually internationally so we'd be for instance you know going on these huge international tours sometimes sponsored by the British Council who sort of take British culture and put it overseas, help help um, present and produce it overseas. So we'd be in, I don't know, we'd be in Buenos Aires, you know, in a thousand-seat theatre in the centre of town, selling out for three weeks, and then come back and play Norwich Arts Centre to 17 people. It was, it was sort of, it was sort of surreal. And we were sort of going, why can't we get, why can't we be successful here? You know, this is our home. This is where we're making all this work. And we were just still doing this kind of art centre circuit. Nothing wrong with art centres, by the way. Brilliant places. But, but you know, <laughs> the, the thirst to play the, to, to more than 40, 50 people was, you know, upon us because we were having all this success internationally. But obviously you were learning your craft as well and developing your craft as you went along. And you created the play What I Wrote, I guess combining elements of, of your own performing style, but but also with the insight that if you could take something of Morecambe and Wise's characters, if you played it right, you could have a big hit on your hands. Well, that's right. It was about, yeah, we'd been together about 10 years before we were asked to make a show about Morecambe and Wise. So actually, of course, we had been getting a bit more notoriety, as it were, we were getting more success. We'd just, a couple of years before that, been at... Edinburgh Festival had a big hit with a show of ours called Do Come Here Often, which was about two men who were stuck in a bathroom for 25 years. And uh, <laughs> and that had become a big hit there. And we'd come down and, and played that in London's Glittering West End, which was a huge thrill for us at the time. And then that had won an Olivier Award. And um, at the time, 
Somebody rang us up and said, but for, for those people who don't know, the Olivier Awards are kind of British theatre's Oscars. So they're, you know, they're the highest kind of awards you can get in British theatre. So, but to, we were so green uh, in still at that stage that when somebody rang us up and said, oh, you've been, uh, you've been nominated for an Olivier Award. We went, great. What's an Olivier Award? So, so we had we still had no idea what we were doing, as you could tell. But um, so we did. We, we'd started to have a bit of success, and from that, then a then a producer, well known, r- rather brilliant West End producer called David Pugh, asked us to make a show about Morecambe and Wise. And we just thought this was the worst idea anyone had had. Mm. Not because, of course, it's be a great be great to have a show about Morecambe and Wise, but if you're a, essentially a young double act. That's the last thing you want to do because that's potentially career-ending, isn't it? And also yeah, that yeah. element of how dare you? How dare you try and be like them or say you're like them? But we got round it in the end by essentially making a show about me and Hamish. So the show was actually, the, the show, the play that I wrote, was actually about a young double act called Sean Foley and Hamish McColl who wanted to be as good as Morecambe and Wise. And the sort of, I guess, the clever element of it was that all of the ele- all of the material in the show felt like it could have been by Morecambe and Wise. So it was sort of our story and their story at the same time. Yeah. Which allowed people to see the sort of, through that prism, allowed people to see the sort of nature of a double act. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was a thrill because it was a, a massive, massive hit. Yeah, and as you said, you were already pretty successful touring internationally, but suddenly then you're in the big time. That is an Olivier Award winner. You weren't just nominated, you won the Olivier Award uh, for that. One of two you've won, as well as your great humanitarian uh, projects that we'll we'll get on to <laughs> yes. later. Get on to <laughs> but I guess in some ways that is a life-changing experience to, to actually win it and be seen as that year's thing. Yeah, I guess so. It certainly, what's fun is actually making something, particularly if you're, if you're, if you, if you would like to make people laugh, if you like to get on stage and make people laugh, the real thrill for us was actually being on stage every night in front of 800 people in a West End theatre, every night for six months, solid, rammed. That was the biggest thrill ever because it was successful, because it got great reviews, because people wanted to come along and do it with us. There was a guest star element. It just meant that we were, we suddenly went from, you know, the Norwich Arts Centre, 17 people a night. Of course, we were doing a little better than that by then. But you go to an area where you're actually being able to play in front of crowds who are sort of loving your loving your work. And that's really the... The best bit about it, genuinely, that is the best thing, is to be able to experience that, which, which you know, you know damn well that many people could go through their entire careers not experiencing something like that. And so you're, uh, to be honest, I'm just really grateful it happened. 
Yeah, and over the years, though, you've obviously written from the start. I suppose you've directed yourself doing the the work with the right size, but that, for want of a better word, backstage element has taken up a a greater proportion of your time, more directing, whether on stage or whether on the big screen. And I mentioned the film that you'd made versus live performance. Do you miss performing live as much as you used to? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. (laughs) I think anyone who's been directed by me, so-called, will <laughs> will sort of tell you that I'm itching to get up there at any moment. You know, not just in rehearsal, but uh, yeah, I'm. That part of me is absolutely still there, and and it's not kind of discounted, as it were. It's not like I've made a decision not to do any more performing or acting. I'm saying this for any casting directors out there. <laughs> is uh, that it's just at the moment and still, you know, the the sort of directing has taken over. I, I was lucky enough to get offered a few jobs directing and the, the first sort of play that I directed in the West End was a version of the classic Ealing comedy, The Lady Killers. And that was a lucky enough to, that that was a big hit. So that sort of set me off on a new journey, you know, and then then it's just that thing of then people go oh well this guy can also direct comedy so let's give him some more jobs and that's how that happened and that's been roughly the last sort of eight or nine years where I've been pretty much full-time kind of freelance director really. Yeah you've uh, kind of engaged with the theatrical world then from the bottom up haven't you you've created your own shows you have played Norwich Arts Centre you've had a West End hit or two, you've directed. I suppose running a, a major producing regional theatre like Birmingham Rep is the next logical step for your career. Well, yeah, well, you, you say that, Adrian, <laughs> but uh, I don't know if it's logical because I don't, I don't, I can't see any logic in anything that I've done. But it was sort of an opportunity that came up um, that I, I hadn't anticipated. It hadn't been crossing my mind. Oh, I must find myself a big theatre to run. Although I liked, I liked the idea, just the concept of running something. I enjoyed that as an idea. But, you know, the specific thing of Birmingham coming up, it's an extraordinary city. You know, it's the UK's second city. It's the only other city in the UK of over a million people. An incredible city of immigration. You've got the, that amazingly diverse influences from all around the globe within Birmingham. I found that exciting. And I found exciting the idea of Birmingham Repertory Theatre, which has been, I mean, you know, not to bore people with the history, as it were, but was the first purpose-built repertory theatre in in the world, as far as I understand, certainly in the UK, on its original site in Station Street, and was the leading theatre in this country, you know, the forerunner of both the RSC and the National Theatre. And it was that kind of history... And the feeling that, you know, Birmingham is going to have, was going through something of a renaissance and building up to the Commonwealth Games and all of these things seemed to be floating around in my mind when the job came up, the opportunity to apply for the job initially. I wasn't just given it, you know, I had to convince the board. So they're to blame, really, <laughs> that I'm there. I just thought it was a, a absolutely wonderful opportunity to go and work at a theatre that had three auditoria 
which is amazing. So you can do small scale plays, mid scale plays and big plays. And work in a city that was, I think, going to have this big moment coming up of regeneration and renaissance. And that seemed to me a very exciting thing. So I applied for the job and was lucky enough to get it. Hmm. Uh, before I talk about that, I just wonder, is there something about somebody who's got a CV as varied uh, as yours, uh, a very successful CV, but have you got a low boredom threshold? Do you just need to do something? Do you have to do something <laughs> new all the time? Yeah, I've got a new job next week. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to... There's something in that, in that there, I'd been directing, freelance director for like I say, about eight, nine years. And as I also say, you know, very luckily enough, pretty successfully, lots of shows in the West End, lots of uh, hits. And, you, you know, become certainly one of the sort of go-to people if you've got a theatrical comedy is, um, you know, I, I was definitely, I would be on that list to direct it. So, and that's brilliant. Don't get me wrong. If you've got any work in this business at all, you're doing well. But it, it, it is, it did, just the job came up at the right time when I was sort of feeling like, well, what is sort of the next step? And the next step could have been, you know, I've made one film, I hope to make another one. I'm sure I will at one stage. You know, there, there could have been, oh, am I going to suddenly have a film career as a director or... Uh, what was it, you know, so, and but the, this job came up and like I said, the sort of itchy feetness of what's the next thing was part of my decision, definitely, um, because it's a huge challenge, basically. It's a really, really huge challenge to take Birmingham Repertory Theatre into a new era and create, I always think of it when people say regional theatre, I say, well, yeah, but Birmingham's not really, you know, it's, it's an international city. So I, my view of it is it should be a great civic theatre, a great national theatre for popular theatre, and a great international theatre. And that's a big challenge to, to get that going, and that's what I'm, well, enjoying, is that the word at the moment, uh, under the current circumstances? But that's certainly what attracted me to it, yeah. Yeah, well, let's talk about those current circumstances, because obviously by now, in normal times, you would have been up and running in your role as artistic director, putting plays on the stage or stages at Birmingham Rep. And I guess coronavirus is going to impact massively on all performing arts. How do you even start confronting a challenge like the one that you've got now? Well, it's a great question. You know, the the w- one thing's for sure in 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 the arts in in theatre, in film, in TV, in the visual arts, you know, you've ha- you have, well, there it is. It's creativity. It's a lot, of, lot of creative people. A lot of people who are very, very used to finding another way to thinking around a problem. And to be honest, nobody knows what to do <laughs> um, because it's obviously such a huge thing for everyone. And I, and I, I foreground, you know, everything I'm going to say about the arts by saying, of course. You know, th- this is not as important as the life and death issues going on, you know, in, in the population and in our hospitals. And that is foremost. And I would do anything. In fact, you know, we've 
we've had, while we've furloughed a lot of our staff, they've been able to volunteer, you know, making scrubs for the NHS and doing everything we can as a, as a civic theater to, to help. But eventually, hopefully, you know, when we do come out the other side, people are going to want some entertainment. They're going to, they're going to want to laugh. They're going to want to, to go out, to meet each other, to have that fun and celebration of being together in our culture. The thing that's exercising everybody in my industry at the moment is that we may not be there. I mean, that sounds dramatic, but it's actually true that at the moment you're looking at pretty much everybody in our industry run, literally running out of money and going bust by you know, various projections. Some theatres have gone bust already, you know, but it could be end of the summer, could be middle of the autumn, could be by Christmas. I mean, I, I was reading that they do think that about 75% of theatres are going to not exist by Christmas without a modicum of government investment. So it's quite, it is quite dramatic. <laughs> it's dramatic for a there's a drama on at the theatre. Indeed. Well, how, I mean, if, if you don't mind me asking you, Sean, I mean, how acute is the situation at Birmingham Rep? Well, it's we, we are monitoring it week by week. We have nearly 90% of our staff on the fur, furlough, the uh, job retention scheme. That's our only income at the moment, via, which is coming via the government. The difficulty that theatre has as as opposed to other industries say as if you've got a shop and people say okay well you can open your shop now and you go okay that's the Monday I can open my shop well there you go you open your shop and you start to sell what you've got in the theatre if you say well you can open on Monday um well I still have to make something to sell to you and that takes months and all the shows that we were going to do before we shut down uh, are, are completely disbanded. They're they're blown to the winds. So so there's at least a couple of months where I've got to pay all the staff and everybody involved in the theatre before I can get anything uh, in front of the paying customers. And it's during that time that we are most in jeopardy um, because if there's you know the 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 awful idea of a second spike in in the illness then and we have to shut down again we'll have spent literally you know over the industry-wide millions of pounds trying to create new shows to put in front of people and then shut down again and we'll be even deeper in a hole so it's quite dicey I'd say. And what what representations are being made to government by the theatre industry? And I'm getting down on my knees every day Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've got a little figurine of Oliver Dowden, the culture secretary, <laughs> praying to him. Um, well, the, you know, obviously, there are lots and lots of uh, parts of our industry. And it is, it is an industry. You know, in ter- if people think about industries and they think, well, oh, the aviation industry is going to government, you know, because they're in trouble and they, they want a bit of money to tide them over. You know, we... In terms of what we earn, I mean, talking about the creative industries in Britain, we earn twice as much for the country than the aviation industry. And that will maybe make people sort of stop for a moment and go, what, really? Yes, that's the thing. 
And what we're trying to do is make the case, which is true, is that you know, for every five pounds you invest in the creative industries, you get twenty-five pounds back. That's that's how much we create, and we can see that absolutely at Birmingham Rep, where about twenty percent of our income is grants from the Arts Council. So we take that twenty percent of our income and we create the hundred percent of our income, as it were, from that investment. So it's not. You know, to try and take away this idea that it, you know it's handouts for the arts. It isn't handouts. It's investment, and the difficult the difficult position we're in now is convincing people to just make that investment to tide us over that two or three months where we can't put things in front of people, and then we're going to be all right. And not only that, we'll start creating money again for the economy very very fast, faster than most industries do. So that that's what we're focusing on at the moment is to is to let people understand how much we can contribute, and that's just economically, of course. Before we even go into how much the arts can contribute to people's lives, just their everyday life, just uh, that it's a great thing to go out together to the theatre, to the cinema, to go and hear some music of whatever type you like. Uh, yeah. So, like I say, on my knees every day to Oliver Dowden. The, the real answer to that question, Adrian, is that the, the, as an industry, we are organising, of course, and having a lot of discussions together and representations are being made to government through UK theatre and through SALT, which is Society of London Theatre. I'm just thinking, Sean, you know, given your very rich and varied career, getting the show back on the road at Birmingham Rep and getting things up and running again, assuming that that is possible. And from what you're saying, I don't think at this moment we can take that for granted in a way that might even be your, your biggest achievement, if you can pull it off. Uh, well, I hope so, but I hope my biggest achievement's away in the future. But it certainly would be a wonderful thing. I mean, a really, really wonderful thing to be able to, you know, uh, a, a fantastic guy local to Birmingham, who lives in Birmingham, I should say, rather, who's been a wonderful actor and director in his own right, a guy called Tyrone Huggins, who's who's part of our artistic associates there. He's got a wonderful phrase for it. He said, well, theatre is the canary in the mine, you know. It was the first to go out, but you know damn well that once we're all back in the theatre, enjoying ourselves there, this thing will be over. And... Yeah, of course, that will be a w- wonderful moment. I hope for everyone when people can gather again to enjoy themselves. So yes, that would be a, not just for Birmingham Rep, but that would be a wonderful moment for for the country. I think as you know, the theatres get back open after the plague. Indeed. Sean, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. That's uh, Sean Foley, Artistic Director at Birmingham Rep. I'm Adrian Goldberg. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends via social media. I'm at Goldberg Radio. Sean Foley is on Twitter as well. Got any ideas, suggestions you want to drop to me, you can email goldbergradio at gmail.com. And if you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, please do get in touch. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, Thank you very much indeed for listening and thank you, Sean Foley. Thanks, Adrian.